You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam radio. It is Sunday the 17th of December 2023. The time now is 10 or 9. The Weekend World Show is a show on... Uh, the, uh, sorry, yeah. I got my lines wrong there. This is the Weekend World Show on Voice of Islam with Hassan Ahmadi. You can listen to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile and online 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from the Battle Fatou Mosque in London. The Weekend World Show is a current affair show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, sports and politics uh, and on faith and spirituality, the message of Islam for the West. Join us and share with your views and stories by phoning 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests and not necessarily the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, my co-host, as ever, is Waleed Ahmed. Waleed is the chief librarian here at the Bethel Fatou Mosque, the UK's largest mosque, as well as the editor-in-chief of the Ahmadiyya Bulletin publication. Uh, good morning. Assalamu alaikum, Waleed. Waalaikum Peace and blessings to you as well. I hope you are well. Alhamdulillah. Enjoying Waleed? the weather. Yes, it, it's mm. quite mild. It's, mm. uh, didn't need to put an overcoat on today, which is good. Um, yep. But the weather in... Uh, Palestine, I don't think, is great. No. Uh, certainly not the political climate or the humanitarian climate there, certainly. And uh, once Howard Zinn, who was an American historian, playwright, philosopher, socialist intellect, and a World War II veteran, says, there is no flag large enough to cover the shame of killing innocent people. Mm. Profound, and very I think so. very much... Um, Relevant to the times of today. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, um, it's very sad the way that uh, indiscriminate killing is uh, taking place. Um, the uh, death toll in Gaza has uh, reached uh, over 19,000 now, uh, nearly 20,000. And the amazing thing is 70% of women are children. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, there's no like large, large enough to cover the shame of uh, those deaths um, and certainly not of those who are perpetrating those deaths and those who are supporting that kind of killing. I think they also have to uh, reflect on uh, on uh, that this conduct. And it's interesting to know that um, the majority of the countries of the world are actually wanting a permanent ceasefire and Israel and uh, in the United States uh, stand almost on their own. They do, because yeah. uh, they're, they're in the UN Security Council meeting mm. with the 50 members vote, mm -hmm. uh, everyone voted for the ceasefire except for America, mm -hmm. the United States. They vetoed it, which mm. means basically rejecting mm. it. Mm. So they want this continuation. Yeah. And the United Kingdom, the only other one not to have voted mm. for the ceasefire, had abstained from mm. it. Yeah. And uh, I think history will tell us that these two nations mm. will, were wrong in mm. their mm. Uh, decision making. Yeah, 
It's interesting that, I mean, Lord Cameron and uh, his German counterpart in the newspaper today, Today, which newspaper, has asked, in the the Times, Times, uh, has asked for a sustainable um, ceasefire, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Uh, Frank Gardner of the BBC was asking Mm. the question, was being asked a question, what's the difference between sustainable and Mm. uh, immediate? Because this is what is required, Mm. not sustainable. Mm. We Mm. want a permanent ceasefire. The killing is is unsurmountable. Mm. It, It is... Uh, to me, they, I, I, yeah. we never thought we would see something like that in our lifetime. We, no. Vietnam was quite close. Mm. Uh, then Iraq came and overdid that, and mm. this has outdone all of them. Mm. Mm. And it's not just killing through um, through missiles and bombs. It's mm. also killing through um, the destruction of the uh, infrastructure, destruction of hospitals, yep. uh, and... Um, the what uh, the humanitarian agencies are saying the spread of uh, disease and starvation that is going to uh, follow yeah exactly uh, and is following okay so yes it's very sad yeah okay uh, lots on the show on that so no surprise what we'll be discussing on the show and with whom today we leave hmm. well um Saf will kick off with his take on the news review and uh, uh, the week's top stories uh, that will be followed by Faith in Focus. Uh, mm. That particular segment will be discussing further the uh, life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, so that's what we have got initially. Okay, and after the 11 o'clock? Uh, and then, uh, yes, that will be Dr. Iqbal from Living History who will be joining us. Uh, and he will be talking, about, uh, be talking uh, about what now for Palestine and what ramification will this conflict have around the world. Right. And I think we've got uh, the Imam, uh, the Ask the Imam segment as well. Okay, uh, well, uh, Daniel Carlon will uh, be with us uh, uh, to talk about Islam's guidance of rules of engagement of war and what guidelines the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, gave if war had to be fought and how. And if we get time, we will cover the latest uh, from the membership. Also interesting, though, uh, thought-provoking show in, uh, in store for our listeners, I hope, inshallah. Okay, right. So uh, we might uh, be able to discuss some sports because Shahid might not be available oh. online. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you can uh, enlighten our yeah. listeners with what's going on with the Premiership football, etc. Mm-hmm. But interesting, for thought-provoking show, I hope, for our listeners, uh, God willing. Uh, anyone eager to comment on the, or share their views can do so by phoning 208 or they can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile or live stream, or on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, well, if we'll hmm. start with our first uh, segment of the show, which is, uh, as always, that's, uh, the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. Right, really. Um, hostages were carrying white cloth when shot, IDF says. This is Israeli Defense Force. This is reported by the BBC. What are they reporting? They, well, they're saying three Israeli hostages, mistakenly killed by Israeli soldiers in Gaza, were shot dead while holding a white cloth, an Israeli military official says. The official said the case was against our rules of engagement and investigation was happening at the highest level. The hostages, Yotam Haim, 28, Samar Talalka, 22, and Alan 
Shamir's uh, 26 were killed in uh, Shijaya on Friday. Yes, the case will add pressure on Israeli authorities to reach a deal for the release of captives who remain in Gaza. More than 120 people remain hostage in Gaza after being abducted, uh, abducted in the Hamas attacks of 7th October. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, told the news uh, conference on Saturday evening that there will be no let-up in the Israeli operations. Uh, he said military pressure is necessary both for the return of the hostages and for victory. Without military pressure, we have nothing, he said. Right. Um, joining us for the first segment, I believe, will mm-hmm. be... Uh, Saf, Saf Ahmadi, a regular contributor on the show and works in the finance industry. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, uh, Saf, can you hear us? Wa Alaikum Salaam, yes, yes, I'm here. Peace be upon you, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, your sound is a bit low, maybe it's our side of things, uh, but uh, can you hear us okay now? I can hear you, can you hear me any better? A little bit better, yeah, that's good, thank you very much. Okay. Right, uh, Saf, so... Uh, Israel is obviously in the forefront of our uh, discussions, yeah. as as has been for the last few shows, and we've been discovering, uh, discussing, and covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict since the seventh October. Of course, history of the conflict didn't start on that day, and the Palestinian mm. people have been suffering since the land was taken away without consultation. If you remember, the UN resolution did not consult the Palestinian people. But what does this incident of killing their own hostages tell us about the IDF and what's going on in Gaza and what the what the Israelis want to do? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, if you take this particular incident into consideration, it's, uh, it does look, it looks, uh, you know, the problem becomes for the IDF is that um, it's becoming more and more uh, of the view of everyone that this is indiscriminate. You know, they're, they're literally, they're going in and everyone um, uh, is, uh, is anyone in the, in the areas that are covered by, you know, um, Gaza. And uh, even now the West Bank is also beginning to look incredibly difficult, but uh, everyone is a, is, is a walking target. Now, this has caused a lot of problems. And I think uh, for for the Israeli government, I think they, they're beginning to understand that, that there is a big shift of public perception. Even if you look at yesterday, um, uh, there were there were mass protests uh, outside uh, the Israeli government by um, by actually the families of those uh, that had been taken hostages, who are now also asking for a ceasefire. Um, You mentioned also, you know, at the beginning about the U.S. and the U.K. and they have, you know, they, they they've supported Israel's actions throughout the whole throughout this whole process. Mm. But the reality is, I think even their uh, support is beginning to wane. There's a lot of reports now that Biden is also, um, uh, you know, having a lot of consultations. You know, like trying to sort of roll back. But uh, the Israeli government, especially, you know, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, I think because of his strong requirement of the right wing and the right side of the politics within Israel has decided to continue on this course of action of um, of extreme violence, I guess you could put it um, in, in, in... The genocide, in, in, continuation in, in, of the genocide, the genocide, if you ask me. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we've also, for example, this morning, you've also seen the French being very, very strong and calling for a ceasefire. And it turns out the reason for that was that they actually they had an employee die as a result of his injuries during the strike in Rafa. 
So, uh, so again, the, 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 are these nations only reacting when one of their own is uh, is attacked or is suffered by well, but no I care mean, for the Palestinian people? I mean, it, it seems like hypocrisy to me. And even the Germans, uh, I believe, mentioned something uh, this morning that uh, the uh, David Cameron and the Germans have asked for a uh, sustainable sustainable ceasefire. Uh, yeah. cease um, I mean, these were the nations that was giving full support to Israel to continue their killings. And the reality is, I mean, somewhere like the UK, Germany, I mean, although they've had their own civilians that have been caught up in, uh, in, in this war, uh, there is a very big political element of this as well, because they, I think they're all recognizing that there is a general shift and mood of the general population that do not support this mm. um, these actions. And actually, a wide range and whether it be you know uh, uh, whether it be in europe or in south america in africa we're seeing this large shift um away from uh from from this issue so th there is a political reason why many of these countries will be calling for a ceasefire now because actually it doesn't it's, it's not beginning to look good on many of them that have been supportive mm. uh, up until this stage so well the united um, nations voting uh, voting is telling us that 153 nations um, yeah. voted for a ceasefire, and only a few of these, including Britain, Germany, France, and America, are the ones who are uh, not supporting a ceasefire. What do they want? Do they want a continuation of the killings? This is, again, I mean, you know, uh, this is a... <laughs> it's a rhetorical question, concept. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I mean, and I think that the, the reality is, when it comes down to it, these are all political plays, right? I mean, you know, the, the, there is this linkage between... Um, uh, and connection of either political or economic power between these nations, mm. which needs to be sustained. And that is what comes into uh, into the forefront when it comes to these voting uh, things. We see also, for example, and I know it's something we'll touch upon, you know, some of the some of the other countries within that region have been um, have been very quiet, you know, um, with uh, uh, with the way things are going, because they know that they they've already, you know, because of these Abrahamic accords and things like that. They were hoping for a much more economic uh, um, partnership with yeah, Israel, yeah. and they don't want that to come under uh, under pressure. Yeah. So they have had to. Hold they don't back. want to jeopardize those uh, those deals that they made, and from which they I do think. Benefit. I mean, if you ask me, I do think that currently um, Netanyahu, in particular, and the Israeli government are overplaying their hand. I think there is coming a point where uh, the general consensus is shifting to such a large degree. Um, that uh, I think more and more there will be a lot more pressure on them. Um, well, having all, said that, how they react, yeah. how they react to that, and whether they will wish to become more isolationist and just continue with their bombardment will be up to them. Mm. But I do think there is a general consensus uh, across the uh, across the globe now that people want them to now um, uh, stall or you know like. One of the reasons they're saying for this, uh, maybe Waleed can have some input in this, mm. is that because uh, the action so far has produced hardly any of the hostages being released, uh, apart mm. from the, the period of the time of the ceasefire. Mm. So they haven't been able to get to those uh, hostages through the war. Only through the ceasefire were some released. And uh, very few Hamas leaders have been uh, caught. Um, or killed, we don't know. Mm. Uh, and therefore, the actions of the 
of the Israeli army is not producing the results. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, these three soldiers have been killed. Believe your thought on that? Yes, I mean, but that's what the Israeli government is saying, is saying that it's only by this kind of uh, brutal action can they smash... Uh, no, but they're failing. Mm-hmm. They haven't got the hostages well, now, that's what they wanted to they're do. They're saying that they haven't completed the task. No, they're yeah, given a few, but, month, but few the, more months. The, yeah, but in the months that have gone, with over tw- nearly 20,000 mm. sub- killed Palestinians, almost all of Gaza destructed, mm. and, and, and they need more time. Mm. I mean, it doesn't make sense, and that's what the pressure is, and that's what's possibly making some of the countries change their views. Uh, Saf, do you reckon that's the that, that, that's the reason? No, absolutely. I think, but I, I, again, I think the, the the issue is, and if we go back to what um, you know, this whole concept of uh, you know we must uh, we must continue, and you know, like the military action is necessary. It really is. It's a cry out for his ultra right wing because Netanyahu. Uh, I think again, if you look at sort of you know like the domestic politics. As, you know, his his requirement to sort of stay in, he needs that um, uh, he he needs that um, support from that ultra right wing who want to continue in, uh, in this vein. Because I um, and again, it's my honest opinion. It's my own opinion. Um, I believe that their only goal is to remove the state of uh, Palestine. You know, for the ultra ultra right wing that belong in that uh, you know, and and their push. To go into this um, into this uh, destructive mode, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything being you know the, the the hostages almost become a secondary issue now. You know it has been and uh, it has almost been an open ticket for them to go in mm-hmm. um, and to sort of perform these kind of actions. And this is where we're at. So you know um, I think the the fact is I think you know even if you look at local is uh, local Israeli the local Israeli population. Many of them have also changed complete tone. You know where they sort of said, and, and, uh, there yeah, was, but they changing. Was a point they wanted hostages. They wanted their hostages back. Yeah, that's like that's you the, said. The point I was going to like, make. Yeah. Exactly, like you said, they wanted their hostages back. They haven't had their hostages back. None of this has actually enabled that. In actual fact, they're very rec- uh, recognition of the fact that the um, the uh, uh, their relationship with the Palestinians is going to come under a lot of. It's going to it's making things a lot worse. Hmm. This is not making anything better. You cannot yeah. get rid of Hamas. It's it's impossible. I mean, How can you, know, you like get rid of an ideology? Mm. Believe yeah. you want to come into this? Yes, I want to know, Saf. Do you think that this has permanently changed the uh, the PR uh, position of Israel? That they are no longer considered to be a victim, but very much uh, an aggressor in in the world now. I think so. Yes, I think I think for with the some first nations. time, yeah, with some na- Well, whether I, I think uh, not so much with nations. I think nations have always understood the relationship between the two parties. I think it's more with general population. I think um, slowly as this uh, continues, people are beginning to ask questions about their support for, um, as you said, you know, like the understanding of where sort of Israel stood and where. Uh, Palestine stood, and actually, even the local Israeli population are also of the same opinion that you know things have got too far. So, um, and you know, their actions have not actually enabled and helped uh, anything to date. So, um, I think if you look at what I, I think it's more, it's a game changer in the general uh, view that people will have over the uh, over the situation going forward. I think they th- there is a th- there is a recognition across the world now that um, regardless of the actions of Hamas 
on October the 7th, which, of course, you know, we all condemn, and they were wrong, you know, like for, to, uh, to take the action. However, there are a, there is so many linking factors um, uh, that have sort of taken place to get to that stage. And also, I think the brutality of sort of the response um, is now really being put into question. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you, for the loss of 1,000 people, I mean, to go in and to kill 18,700 people, which is the current figure. Um, and the know, destruction the of the whole infrastructure. You know, the question really has to raise, you know, like at what point is fair fair? Yeah. You know? and, yeah. Uh, what, about, uh, what about the Arab nations? They're the neighbors. Um, they've always been very quiet on this and they've never given the Palestinians the support that they have required. And, mm. and had the Arab nations been stronger... They would surely have been put. Uh, Israel surely would have been put under pressure uh, into making sure that the Palestinian rights were given. Uh, yeah. uh, if that was the case, seventh October would never have happened. Seventh uh, yeah. October is a result of the fifty odd years, sixty years odd years of persecution of the Palestinian people. So the Qataris, I know, have been heavily involved in the negotiations with the mass and as go-betweens, but it appears that Arab voice is weak. Um, yeah. I think um, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the, the voices have been predominantly uh, very quiet. I, and if you look, and I, I go back to, you know, if you look at what was in the Abrahamic Accords and, you know, like the sort of opening, I think there was a big view at that time that there could be better relations with Israel and, you know, there could be there would be a lot of economic um, uh, uh, partnerships mm -hmm. in the region. Even prior to that, I think there is another element of this. And I think, you know, we have to be honest about this. Some of the other Arab nations have not looked very pleasantly on the Palestinians. I mean, they've seen them as this sort of refugee class um, uh, of the area and have actually been uh, uh, quite dismissive of them in the, you know, in the past. And now, you know, because every time it sort of bubbles up these kind of situations um they 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 know that they should be you know that they should be uh, supporting them mm. but uh, you know in in the sense of they haven't given them refuge all of the time and very easily i mean we see that sometimes with well, they, uh, some of the neighboring countries no but um, in terms of uh, jordan and egypt there are a lot of uh, uh, refugees uh, are there millions do. and uh, jordan uh, and lebanon hold the largest number of uh, refugees in, in some cases will it, no, is they it do. yeah, yeah. Will it, is it a case of uh, being bit once bitten twice shy for the arabs having had a bit of a battering from israel in the past misjudged attacks on israel um, possibly but i think they also recognize their um, their inadequate position i think uh, Militarily, mm -hmm. they're no match uh, at all for the uh, for the uh, most uh, best equipped uh, army in the Middle East. They've got the most uh, wealth there. They may have a lot of wealth, but uh, they have not got the kind of equipment that uh, Israel has. Mm. So they're going to be no match militarily and economically. Yeah. Economically, I think that they are uh, they they are hamstrung by. Uh, by by bigger powers. Mm. Uh, I was going to say, uh, Seth, yeah. that uh, because uh, 
countries like Saudi who are in bed with America, basically, mm. giving them bases, etc. America will never let them yeah. arm themselves to be a competitor against Israel. And they can't impose yeah, an oil bar embargo either. Sorry, Saf. They can't impose no, an oil no. embargo either. No. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Uh, U.S. pressure. Okay. Well, is that? Yeah, yeah, no, I completely, 100% agree. I think, I mean, you know, this is this is what it comes down to. I think mm. it's not just so much the uh, direct relationship with Israel, it's also the relationship with all of, you know, like, for example, the US the, uh, in Europe, who are uh, who have always been supportive of, uh, you know, uh, Israel and the Israeli state. Um, so they, they've, they've known to sort of back off where they need to, because ultimately, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, uh, you know, most of the Arab nations know where their bread is buttered. And ultimately, uh, for example, you look at the likes of the oil-producing nations, there is a big reliance on um, uh, on Western powers to control the flow and to buy their oil and what have you. Funnily enough, the one, the one country that has always in, uh, been supportive of uh, the uh, of the uh, plight of the Palestinians has yeah. been the Iranians, and of course the Iranians have because they don't have that link into uh, they don't have that mm. reliance on um, uh, on, on the West mm. uh, as much, um, and have as a result you know like been allowed to sort of uh, su- be supportive. So you know the, the the economics and the politics of it becomes very clear. Um, uh, you know who was it also? You know we look at for example the Chinese and the Russians were very supportive of the Palestinian sort of causes over more recent times, not always, but, you know, over more recent times. Um, and again, I believe that uh, this situation, when you take it sort of in, a, in its whole, and why I think even the West are becoming very, very uncomfortable with it, is because battle lines are being drawn. And I mean that sort of on a global scale. Um, you know, there, there is becoming a very clear thing. If you look at what also, if you look at what Putin said very recently, you know, in his uh, in his long four hour speech, which he gives with on the an press, yeah, basis, with his uh, annual press, uh, with, uh, conference, annual press uh, conference, he um, he 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 what he did was he mirrored what Netanyahu said, you know, when he was talking about Ukraine he, and he did it very purposefully. Um, he said, you know, we will not uh, we will not finish our uh, uh, this uh, the war until our objectives have been met, mm. which was almost a mirror of what uh, Netanyahu said. And I think he yeah. did, and I think, he, and he did it obviously very purposefully, um, almost to draw the comparison that you know, if you're supportive of uh, this guy over here, then you know, I I, I have my own objectives, uh, objectives that I. Yeah, have if you're to supporting met. Netanyahu for his object, long-term objectives, exactly. then why aren't you yeah. supporting me? It was basically yeah. highlighting the hypocrisy of the West, which uh, happens in many cases. Uh, Saf, we were going to discuss a little bit about the Tory um, Rwanda. Rwanda policy, but unfortunately, time has run out on us. Uh, our apologies. Uh, but thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and coming on the show once again and giving us some of your analysis on what is happening. Jazakallah. Thank you very much. Jazakallah. Thank you. Right, Walid, uh, mm-hmm. coming on to the Faith in Focus segment of the show, uh, which is your domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been reviewing the life of the Promised Messiah in earlier episodes. Last time we discussed how people of all faiths came to accept him. Uh, many were ready to lay down their lives rather than reject him, and some actually did. So uh, this is a very um, moving aspect of this mm. because people you know are so committed that they won't give up their faith we know at the time of the holy prophet so many companions 
and the greatest of the such companion sacrifices, yes. although he survived, was as a Bilal, mm. who was persecuted immensely. Mm. Mm. And despite all of that, uh, he mm. remained loyal to that. Mm. So it's in, in a reflection of that. So yeah. this persecution and the merging of members of the community, community had started in the lifetime of the Promised Messiah during his yeah. lifetime. Yeah, it's been tough for him. Can you cite some examples yes. for us? Um, yes, we, as we have covered in previous weeks, there was vile abuse thrown at the Promised Messiah, mm -hmm. uh, both in writing and by word of mouth to his face. Um, and this also extended to his followers, as mentioned. Uh, but his own example and his instructions to his followers was to observe patience. And he refrained from responding in kind, even when cases were brought against him by unscrupulous enemies and were adjudged to be based on lies. He refused to file against, against them uh, for damages, as he was perfectly entitled to do. So no, no uh, sense of revenge, no motivation of uh, revenge actually engulfed him at all. Mm. Um, in his way, he followed the, the example. In this way, he followed the example of the, Holy, of the prophets uh, of old, yeah. always forbearing, forgiving the excesses of their enemies and holding no personal grudges against him, only the false beliefs they entertained. That's mm -hmm. what they were against. So this is the stand of the Ahmadi Muslim community even now. However, the animosity uh, against the community continues to this day, and as far as murder is concerned, that regrettably began uh, during the lifetime of the, Holy, uh, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. Yeah. And the first of these martyrs were Malwi Abdul Rahman and a very saintly figure and renowned scholar from Afghanistan by the name of Saibzada Abdul Latif. And uh, tell me exactly uh, about Saibzada Abdul Latif. Mm. Who exactly was he? Uh, and the circumstances, yes. possibly. Well, uh, he hailed from Afghanistan and was the resident of uh, Saidra, uh, a small village on the bank of the river Sham, uh, Shamal in Afghanistan. Uh, he was a Sayyid by caste. In other words, he could trace his descent from the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And from his forefathers, he was one of the greatest uh, chiefs uh, of his country. He possessed great wealth, and his uh, state spread over a hundred thousand acres in the uh, in the province of Khost, uh, as well as uh, another considerable estate in Banu mm. uh, on the frontier land. Uh, so he's not short of a uh, of a rupee or two. Uh, he was famous for his hospitality. Uh, he was uh, known for his very um, good and gentle manners. He was fond of the Quran and nurtured deep love for the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, some 30 to 40 people used to live in his guest room mm. and were always busy talking over uh, religious uh, subjects, according to one particular um, uh, narrator. The guests, uh, he, he said, were supplied with food by Saibzada Saab, and Saibzada also had um, another appointment by the side of the mosque. When people gathered for prayers, they would come early and first come to his apartment, and there they would uh, talk about religion. And when the time of prayer came, they used to go into the mosque, and after saying their, uh, their prayers, they used to go home. So this was uh, generally the, the um, routine that people observed. Uh, whenever famine broke out in the, in the country, apparently it was not uncommon in those days in Afghanistan, uh, he used to be at the forefront in helping the poor with his own grain. He, he was the owner of a few villages in Khost and uh, also had much land in place, as I mentioned, called Banu under the British government. He had received his education in India, 
and was well versed in the current sciences of theology. He always used to teach uh, Hadith and the Quran, and he knew Hadith, by the way, is the, the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And he knew many th- thousands of uh, sayings of the Holy Prophet by heart, mm. so much so that uh, the king, uh, or the emir, as he was referred to, Abdul Rahman of Kabul, admitted uh, um, of his piety and used to say that there was only one person in his kingdom who, in addition to his being learned and pious, remembered as many sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, as he did. And he appointed, this king appointed him as a scholar of the court. Clearly very uh, highly esteemed mm. in the eyes of the emir of mm. Kabul. Was he given special responsibilities because of his uh, love of him? Mm. Uh, certainly. Yeah. Certainly. So it was not just his religious uh, acumen that uh, was quite evident. He was, he was also very capable and very intelligent. And it is for this reason, uh, in 1893, uh, the king, uh, Abdul Rahman, appointed him, uh, along with the governor of Khost, to demarcate the boundary line between Khost and Parachanar uh, um, with the British. It was, a, it was a royal commission set up mm. to negotiate terms with the British. Uh, at, uh, and uh, he was uh, the representative of, uh, of the people, the king. Uh, and at most times, he used to take part in the work of demarcation single-handedly with the British officers. And also during the, the last days of the reign of, um, uh, of uh, um, King Abdul Rahman or Amir Abdul Rahman, he sent for um, Saib Zadda, the, the Amir did, and asked the family to reside, to come to Kabul, uh, uh, Kabul and uh, uh, reside there, live there, uh, so that uh, he could teach the Holy Quran and these uh, from that uh, from that capital, and when uh, the, he died in 1901, this uh, King Abdul Rahman or Amir Abdul Rahman, his son Amir Habibullah Khan succeeded him, and this time all the courtiers uh, came to swear an oath of allegiance uh, to the Amir, as was the practice, and he, the new Amir, sent for Saib Zadda Abdul Latif specially so that he could also make a personal oath of allegiance uh, to him. And in addition to that, he was given the honor of participating in this ceremony called Dastar Bandi uh, to the ruler. This is where, as I understood it, um, the uh, the cloth of the turban uh, that represents authority is tied mm. on the new ruler's head. And on this occasion, when two or three coils remained, it was Saib Zadda Abdul Latif was given the unique privilege of tying this last part to complete the coronation on the Amir's head. So he held a position of great respect and honor uh, by the elite of his time, and rightly so. High honor indeed, mm. um, especially of the Dastabandi mm. uh, aspect of it. Uh, it is uh, not accoladed to many mm. people. No. Uh, how did he come to learn about the promised Messiah? Well, uh, um, a few months after the coronation of the new Emir, this is in 1901, he went on a, a pilgrimage with the blessings of the, of the uh, new Emir, who also gave him some money along with horses and camels. So, uh, and it it was it happened that it was on this journey that he came across a learned member of the community, informed him about the uh, promised Messiah and about his claim, and he also gave. A book of the Promised Messiah. It was Ayanate 
Ayana Kamalate Islam, which means mirror of excellencies of Islam. Mm. Mm. Um, now, there is another account, and this perhaps is more reliable because I found this in one of the writings of the, uh, the, uh, the Promised Messiah. He says that it was during his work for the Royal Commission uh, that he came across this book. The story is that among the British contingent, there was a stenographer from Peshawar who was a follower of the Promised Messiah. And his name was uh, Chan Badsha, or Chun Badsha, uh, who, in observing the saintly countenance of Saib Zada Saab, presented him with the book of uh, book Ayna uh, Kamalat Islam. So it has to be remembered that the, the, the encounter or the engagement initially was for worldly purposes, demarcation of line, mm. um, the line. But this particular individual, Chan Badshah, on noticing the saintly appearance of this uh, person, thought that he would definitely be interested in something like this, and hence he gave him that book. Um, and uh, it is said that uh, Saib Zada Saab um, poured over this particular book all night, and by the morning he was convinced of the truth of the author. He needed no other evidence, no other uh, proof. Uh, indeed, he was so impressed with this book that uh, he even later on read it out to some of his friends in his apartment next to the mosque. He told them that he was uh, absolutely sure that the author of the book was the expected person or the promised one from whom the world had been looking uh, for and that the promised one had come in the person of Hussain Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian. He said that he had known that this was the time of that reformer. Having looked around, he could find no one that would fit that position. His own knowledge of the scripture was immense, and he was overawed by the way that the Quran revealed all its secret and hidden meanings to him. This is to Sahib Zada Sahib, he's saying mm. about mm. himself. And sometimes, uh, in an embodied form, revealed its uh, meaning to him, so much so that he thought maybe God had raised him as that reformer, However, after studying this book of the Promised Messiah, he was left in no doubt that that reformer was none other than Hazrat Mizah Ghulam Ahmed, and he concluded that Hazrat Mizah Ghulam Ahmed the Qadian was the same person about whom the Prophet, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had enjoined that whenever he should appear, people should run to him and convey to him for uh, the uh, Prophet's uh, greetings, the salam. Hence, he urged all those close to him to go and pay their respects to the one about whom the Holy Prophet had instructed to deliver their salam. Among the, his companions at the time was uh, one Sayyid Abdul Sattar, Shab, uh, Sattar uh, Sahib, who confirmed that Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was indeed the Mahdi whose advent had been promised, uh, had, had been prophesied by the Holy Prophet. If I remember correctly, and if mm. it's the same Abdul Sattar Sahib, he's the... Uh, Maternal grandfather of Hazrat uh, Misir Rabe. All right, okay. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm not good on history okay, on, the, on those okay. aspects of things, but, uh, but uh, yes. I'm sure that uh, mm. someone, uh, yes. will, we can check on that and, mm. and, and get some feedback. And if it's not right, someone will let us know. I'm sure, yes, yeah. yes. Mm. I mean, it just shows you the power of, power of the Promised Messiah's mm. writings that people, when they read it, Mm. at the time were swayed by him oh, just yes. through, the, through that work. Those people who were sincere, pure-hearted, yes. good-natured, yeah. you know, that it is to them that it appealed. You know, mm. this is also something, you know, we find in the Holy Quran, 
we find uh, in the first verse of the second chapter mm. that this is book there is no doubt uh, in it yeah. it is a guidance for the right for the, for the righteous for the so righteous. it's the righteous yeah. that uh, yeah. are then guided guided Indeed. so if you're righteous as yeah. saibs other clearly was yeah. then this any truth any truth yeah. is, is something that is appealing uh, and the promised messiah basically came to elevate the position of yes. the quran his writings contained everything about the quran mm. therefore the righteous people when they saw those enlightenments written by the promised messiah were attracted to mm. Mm. and suddenly shahid abdulati was one of them yeah. i assume following that hadith knowing the hadith so well yeah. as you just pointed mm. out it would have urged for shahid abdulati to go and meet the promised messiah mm. so did he do that Well, eventually, yes, but at first he sent some of his own pupils, uh, mm-hmm. first under Malvi Abdurrahman. Uh, so this was a devoted uh, companion of Sahib Zada. So he sent him, he, and he, will, he didn't go alone. He he went with some uh, other companions mm. as well, um, and uh, with him uh, he sent uh, Sahib Zada Abdul Latif sent a letter, a letter of bath. You know, in other words, his commitment. in accepting the Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed and this was delivered um, and uh, Maulvi Abdur Rahman was also told that uh, when you go there and stay there then record the activities of the of, uh, of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed and uh, then uh, report these to me mm-hmm. so this was duly done um, and uh, when Abdul Maulvi Abdur Rahman returned he returned with some books and uh, he made a number of uh, of uh, visits in this way at least three but after his last journey back maulvi abdur rahman uh, was reported to the authorities by some mischievous uh, courtiers uh, who came to know the promised messiah's teaching teaching about jihad uh, which obviously was shared by maulvi abdur rahman and they went and told the emir and informed him that maulvi abdur rahman was a disciple of some punjabi who claimed to be the promised messiah and one of his teachings was not only that it was unlawful to wage um, holy war against the british but that in the present age of holy wars not lawful at all so at this the emir uh, or the king flew into an outrage and um, commanded that the um, that uh, uh, Um, Maulvi Abdur Rahman be arrested, so that more could be learnt uh, in this connection after questioning him. So, it was in, in, on the position of jihad, that uh, really was um, the deciding factor uh, in his arrest. In the end, it was proved that the man was undoubtedly a disciple of the Promised Messiah, who strongly opposed the idea of a holy war. So, as a consequence of that, uh, the authorities in Afghanistan at that time imprisoned him. and subsequently murdered him uh, in jail by strangulation or suffocation so in this way maulvi abdur rahman became the first martyr of the ahmadiyya muslim community who sacrificed his life for the sake of his beliefs and uh, what happened to shahid shahid abdullah then he did get to meet the promised messiah well um and as far as records are concerned it doesn't indicate that anything was done to saib sada saab at the time of the murder of maulvi abdur rahman mm-hmm. or the arrest of maulvi abdur rahman um uh, because uh, he continued uh, to send other close and trusted disciples to qadian with the same mission Um, finally, the meeting you asked for uh, asked about in 1902, uh, he did uh, uh, travel 
uh, to Qadian to meet the promised Messiah in person. And when he arrived in Qadian and saw the illuminated and holy face of the promised Messiah, it was a case uh, as been described as love at first sight. He had already accepted uh, the promised Messiah before uh, the meeting, but this was just confirmed and his conviction uh, in was strengthened mm-hmm. further. He had no hesitation whatsoever in taking the oath of allegiance at his hand personally. He stayed in his company for several months, and when the time of parting came, uh, uh, there were many tears uh, that were shed because Sahib Zadda had had developed a genuine and deep love for the Promised Messiah. Upon his return to Afghanistan... This is the love of holiness, the love of... His spirituality. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And upon his return to Afghanistan, Sahib Zada was summoned by the Amir, uh, uh, prom, uh, prompted by the clergy, and asked if he had accepted as the Mizah Ghulam Ahmed as the Mahdi. Mm-hmm. And when told he had, he was instructed to renounce this acceptance or face severe consequences. He refused, and the Amir, prompt, uh, prompted by the clerics, ordered his imprisonment. But this is not all. He was uh, he was ordered to be executed unless he gave up his belief. More than that, he was tortured and humiliated. On the day of his execution, for example, on the 14th of July, 1903, his already shackled body was dragged along the streets of the capital by a rope pierced wow. through his nose. Uh, he was dragged in this way to the place of his execution. People in their uh, hundreds or multitudes uh, lined the streets, jeering and mocking. At the place of execution, he was half buried in the ground. He was given a last chance for his reprieve as the emir came up to him, or some leading figure came up to him and asked him just to renounce um, his his belief. Uh, but uh, even if he did it, even if he whispered it, that would be enough. Uh, and Hazrat Sahib Zadha Sahib was, was not going to abandon something so precious that he had realized he refused. Uh, despite the pain and suffering he had already endured and despite knowing that certain uh, death awaited uh, him, uh, he did not recant, he did not relent. He remained firm to his faith right to the end. Stones were gathered for the barbaric manner in which the execution was to be conducted. The first was hurled by the chief, uh, Kazi, the chief judge, uh, followed by the emir himself and then by a hail of stones. Eventually, his body laid still, buried under the heap of stones. He was later given over to his companions and given a secret burial. Thus ended the saintly life of um, Saib Zadda Abdul Latif, uh, martyred in the path of love, in the path of God, uh, faithful to the end. So two martyrdoms uh, of very faithful, eminent members of the community who mm. had accepted the promised Messiah. This must have had, uh, and, and both uh, happening in Afghanistan, mm. uh, a nation where many Ahmadis now live, yep. although some in fear, but uh, we've had some very eminent uh, Afghani mm. uh, members. The Imam of the mosque oh, yes. in London Mosque was mm. also from a Afghanistan. Very popular Imam Rafiq, yes. yeah. Imam, uh, love, much love. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yes. Rafiq Amasab, yeah. uh, we all have love for him yeah. uh, and, and and his children mm. likewise. But this must have had a great impact on the promised Messiah, uh, you know, mm. having his members having been persecuted mm. and then killed as well. Yes. How did, what was the reaction from him? Well, he was deeply grieved and uh, at what had transpired. He wrote a book, in fact, uh, Narrative to Martyrdoms, Taskarat uh, Shahadatan. 
uh, which commemorated the sacrifice of both uh, Mawlwi Abdul Rahman and Sahib Zad uh, Abdul Latif. And about the latter, Sahib Zad Abdul Latif, he wrote, oh, ye, uh, he, ignorant ones, he's referring uh, to the people who uh, administered this, uh, this uh, punishment, this murder. Is this the teaching of Islam as regards those who differ in their views about faith? I mean, what he says is also relevant today, you see. So this is why I, I wanted this quote to be aired. Is this the teaching of Islam as regards those who differ in their views about Islam? Is that the punishment laid down by the Quran and Islam? How did your day shed this blood? Did the British government, which in the sight of this king and his bigoted mullahs, is the government of the unbelievers and under which government live people of various creeds, ever hang a Muslim or a Hindu because their faith clashed with the faith of their padres? Alas, what a dire and doleful tragedy has been committed in the sky that a perfectly innocent person, despite being true and perfectly justified and despite the testimony of thousands that he was adorned with piety and holiness and was God-fearing, was so cruelly killed simply because of the difference in doctrine. That governor pilot who, as it is mentioned in the gospel, had arrested Jesus at the request of the Jewish priest so that he may be crucified, said that he did not find any fault in Jesus, was a thousand times better than this king. So he's referring to Mir Habibullah Khan. Alas, what a sad thing. The king ought to have, at the very least, asked his divines for the grounds on which they had based the verdict of apostasy and stoning to death. Why did he not ask them the reason? Why did they announce the verdict simply on the basis of a difference in views? Why did he not tell them that such differences were so common even among their own various sects? Is it justified to stone to death someone from a sect which differs in views from theirs? Is this the way and method of this Amir? I wonder how he will answer before God Almighty. Very moving. Mm. Um, and uh, the death of a companion, mm. uh, hard to bear, but the sacrifices the early companions mm. gave for the promised Messiah is, a, yeah, is, immense. is, is amazing. Mm. And, and, and the lesson for us Excellent. that we don't have to suffer through that. Mm. Um, and he also, you know, he wrote about him. He says that I, as far as in praise of Saib Zad Abdul Latif, he said that I, I failed to find adequate words for praise for this venerable sage, mm. who for the sake of obedience and fidelity to me was, has sacrificed everything, his possession and his reputation and even his life, as if all these things were merely inconsequential. How often I find that the beginning and the end of many persons is not in harmony, owing to trivial reasons, some sat satanic insinu insinuations or to even influence of bad company. They fall away and cut themselves asunder. But the loyalty of this extraordinary man I'm unable to describe fully. Every moment he went from strength to strength in his faith in me. So great praise from uh, from the founder of the community. And these sort of sacrifices reflect the times of the Holy Prophet, Salaam, yes. and other probably prophets as yes. well. The, the companions had to suffer mm. a lot, and mm. uh, this is very much in line with that. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, Vilid. A very moving uh, yes. uh, uh, session today on this. Um, and uh, for enlightening us on uh, how the promised Messiah and his companions were so devout to him. 
uh, and the truth of his claims surely show in those co- those good sacrifices of those companions. So we're coming up to the 11 o'clock news and then we'll be straight back. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Welcome back to the Weekend World Show with Asan Amdi and myself, Nidham. The time is 11 or 2. It's Saturday, 17th of December, 2023. We'll be looking at uh, behind the headlines and Israel's objective, as far as Sky News is concerned, is not limited to solving the Hamas problem, putting the UK and US in a difficult position. Yes, and... Uh Israel's ambassador to the UK has insisted there will be no Palestinian state and that Israel believes there is no prospect for a two-state nation, although it has been evident for some time that the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government were no advocates for such a post-war peace. This is the first time the position has been stated so bluntly. Mm, Following many decades of conflict, the West, in the US and UK specifically, uh, contended that a two-state solution is the only viable way to secure an enduring peace. Yes, and what have uh, Al Jazeera been reporting? Well, an unknown number of Palestinians have been killed after Israel struck at uh, UNRWA, UNRWA school, which is being used as a shelter for civilians forced out of their homes as a result of Israel's bombing of Gaza. Al Jazeera reports that a bomb hit the uh, school in the uh, Jabalia uh, refugee camp as women were cooking. Children could be seen as among the dead in the strike. Palestinian families who have been focused or who have been forced from their homes in northern Gaza had taken shelter in the school after being told that it was a, ded- a dedicated safe zone. Yes, uh, we've got a couple of a few clips to play, so let's play those. This is uh, the Israeli ambassador, Zippy Hotavelli. Uh, this is what she said on the Sky News, which we just read out. Is there still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realize the Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but, of October, and we need to build a new one. And in order to build do, a new one... But does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own? Is, I think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is, what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realized. Do they have a state, The answer is absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Well, then because how can there be moment, peace? In, no, how can I'll there be peace you, in The reason there is no peace Israel. is because the Palestinians... <laughs> how can, with, without offering Mark, a state to Palestine, how Mark, can there be peace in Israel? Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state connect- solution is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked, that created this radical people in the other side? Why are you obsessed with that? Now, what wasn't... Su- so that was Zippy Hattavelli. Um I mean, she, she, she accuses that uh, a formula is that's not working. But why isn't it working? Hmm. Not because the Palestinians don't want it to work, but it's because the two-state state has never been given the chance by the Israeli government. Hmm. It, it's yeah. how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, no. I think you, you've you've uh, you've described it very uh, accurately that um, Israel, or certain sections of uh, the Israel uh, uh, authorities, hmm. the government don't want a two-state solution. I mean, uh, it is 
It is easily observable from their actions over the years. Mm. The fact that there are settlements uh, being permitted to be established in uh, in what was supposed to be um, is um, Palestinian territory, the West Bank, yeah. is is clearly indication of that. So. In fact, so many settlements have been now established in the West Bank that it's making uh, a, a viable state um, um, impossible. Okay. Um, so uh, this is the, this is the situation. And just one more, just one more point. I yeah, mean, Israel. I mean, uh, is concerned with the fact that they don't have a partner on the other side. They talk about Hamas mm-hmm. and the violence of Hamas. Uh, ignoring the fact that in the West Bank the authority is not Hamas but the the Palestinian yeah the Palestinian Authority yeah. and the Palestinian Authority have disavowed violence they have uh, uh, totally uh, rejected violence mm. and yet they are not being uh, engaged with at all because if they were being engaged with uh, then they, this this possibility of uh, of a solution of a two state uh, solution uh, could be could be observable, but mm-hmm. um, they have not been. They have been marginalised. Right, and uh, in terms of the West Bank, the PLO were in power for many years, mm. and uh, they have never ever uh, accepted them either. No. And they were, they had turned. They were uh, American with uh, Carter and with uh, Clinton. Came mm. to the negotiating table, mm. made peace, made the pact. Sharon mm. uh, Perez was shot, I think, uh, because uh, mm. he accepted that deal. Mm. Uh, so it's the far right in Israel that's not accepting it. it yes, is. that's what it looks like. And they're uh, the ones who hijacked yes, the yes. peace talks and, and, and what's happening. Yes. So Zippy Hotavelli has got some of her facts wrong or uh, certainly giving... A, a biased view mm. on, on the reality of what is happening. Mm. Uh, let's listen to what uh, Hussam Zomlot, the UN uh, the ambassador for the Palestinian for Palestinian in in the Palestinian state here in the United Kingdom. This is what he said to in response to uh, Zippy Hotovelli. I don't envision this is reality. We are a people, and the people live on on our land. Uh, we have uh, legitimate uh, representation and government, that is the PLO. Our platform is very clear. There is international consensus on the need that Israel ends uh, its occupation uh, uh, that began in '67, and that a state of Palestine is established uh, with Jerusalem as its capital and a fair and legal resolution to the issue of refugees. <clears throat> right. That uh, that, uh, 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 that interview with the Israeli ambassador uh, uh, should not have been shocking to you, uh, Mark. Uh, uh, I think uh, what she said was not really the shocking part because she has been saying this for a long time. Right. Well, and, her and, point and, her, and her government yeah. was saying this for a long time. Right. I, I'm really shocked that you were shocked and the rest of the world, the UK government and everybody else was shocked. I mean, this has been happening for uh, for decades, uh, Mark, not just by Israeli words, right. by Israeli deeds. So I think... Uh, you, uh, Husson Zomlot replies very well and very very yes. adequately. Sorry, I, hmm. I think my sound was off. Sorry. Uh, and uh, this is what the U.S. envoy, um, Jake Sullivan, who just arrived uh, in uh, Israel uh, with some talks, uh, this is what he had to say. The government has indicated that it does not have a long-term plan to occupy Gaza and that ultimately the control of Gaza, the administration of Gaza and the security of Gaza has to transition to the Palestinians. 
So, so there seems to be very contradictory hmm. things being said. So someone's not being honest or there's confusion amongst people. Well, joining us from Bradford is the presenter of Living History on Voice of Islam. He's active on X, formerly Twitter, and a peace campaigner, Dr. Muhammad Iqbal. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Iqbal. Sorry to keep you waiting. Um, there was some technical issue and we couldn't see that you were ready. Oh, alaikum salam, son and Walid. No, no, no problems. I was listening to your show uh, keenly, so no, no worries. You just heard what uh, Zippy Hotovelli said about the two-state state. That's according to her, there is no two-state uh, plans now. Uh, uh, Husam Zomlot, the Israel, the Palestinian ambassador, says that uh, this has been on the cards for many, many, for a long time. But it seems that Jake Sullivan from the American Biden administrator, he's the national security advisor, seems to think that two-state station, two state, station, uh, state is still alive, as does uh, uh, Rishi Sunak. Um, is there confusion? I don't think there's any confusion. You, you know, the Native Americans used to say, I, I don't like to use racist terms, but they used to say white man talks with folk tongue. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, 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 uh, the, I'm, I'm usually very... Never, in other words, never trust them. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, look, we, we, we have to call a spade a spade, especially in sight of the terrible, terrible genocide that's happening in front of our eyes, in front of our screens. So, you know, the time for diplomacy is over in many ways, and she let Kat out of the bag, or whatever the term they use, right? Mm. Uh, Netanyahu and his government, from the very start over the last 20-plus years, have never wanted a two-state solution. This has been a total lie. Mm. And you've seen many um, recordings and programs where he himself has said to his cabinet, look, that the best way to destroy the whole idea of a two-state solution is by supporting Hamas, to split up the PLO, etc., and cause division, and they've been doing that. Um, so this is quite clear, and she has clearly stated what his vision and view has been for a long time. The Americans, the British, the Europeans, in all honesty, have been lying to the world. Hmm. That's the reality, right? Because if there was any truth in it, they would have found a way to ensure that the two-state solution was still living. And it is actually dead now. Because Gaza is basically now being finished off, and the West Bank is virtually finished because all the best areas have been taken up by the settlers. So what state are the Palestinians going to have? None. And this is something that Edward Said, one of the greatest Palestinian writers and you know defenders of the Palestinian rights, said even when the accord was done, and he, by the way, he was a great Christian historian, literary figure, and he said, I've had enough of this. This is finished. It's terrible. The mm. Palestinian cause has been sold down. But despite that, for 20-odd, 30 or whatever, I think, or some mentions to the people who he gives interviews. So we have accepted the peace plan throughout. No violence from our end. And what have we got? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. So I think she's just telling the truth as it is. And the Europeans and the Americans and everybody else are lying through their teeth. And it's about time they came clean. Yeah, I think some critics are saying she was she wasn't supposed to let the cat back <laughs> out of the bag, but but she has, uh, and and many critics are saying that Netanyahu has always wanted an excuse to stop the two state plan, uh, and uh, this seventh October attack was something that he welcomed probably, uh, so that it gave him the excuse not to 
pursued this two-state plan. I'm not saying that he he they planned it. I'm just saying that uh, they wanted something like this to happen. I believe that is probably the case because, as I say, he's on record as saying that the you know best way to scupper the two-state solution mm. by was by supporting Hamas. Now, I, I'm you know it's not for me; it's for the Palestinian people to choose who they want them to represent them. And majority of the Palestinians obviously have the PLO, the Palestinian authorities representing them. And if the people in Gaza chose Hamas, so be it. But even Gaza, right, they, they, they sat with Jimmy Carter and variety of other peace negotiators and they had accepted that, okay, two-state solution. But, but each stage, what is it? And you can see that strategy from here. Every time there was some sort of likelihood of an agreement, they would, uh, you know, instigate some problem, etc. And then they'll start pushing and firing and killing hundreds and if not thousands of people. In the previous sort of, um, um, I, I think, 10 to 15 years, you know, the casualties ran into maybe a few thousand, etc. But here, we're looking at nearly over 20,000 people killed. And God knows how many are under the rubble. Mm. And there's nobody blinking an eyelid from the Western world asking for a proper ceasefire. And Israel certainly don't want to uh, stop for a ceasefire, which means that it's clear that a decision had been made that we need something that helps us to reach our objective. And I agree with you on that totally. Mm. Dr. Mads Gilbert, I think, I believe you wanted to come in. But, uh, no, I was going to ask, yeah. uh, ask Dr. Iqbal, do you think that Israel has lost the war? They haven't destroyed Hamas. They haven't got their hostages back. Um, and despite the bloodshed that they have inflicted on uh, on, Palestine, on Palestinians, they've lost. And the world is ter- and the world is a- turning against yes. them. It yes. appears. Yeah. I believe. I mean, I, I listen to uh, a, a lot of commentators and follow a lot of media throughout the world. One of the benefits of retirement, I suppose. Thank God. And there are many people who are actually saying that that, that yes, you know, over twenty thousand plus Palestinians have been killed. But the great majority of the people throughout the world, especially, you know, in Asia, Africa, Latin America, you name it, they're all with the Palestinians. It's just the, and even the European populations themselves mm. are backing the Palestinian cause. It's just the leaders, um, you know, really, who are, in my way, complicit in this genocide. And they will be held accountable one day, uh, inshallah. Um, you know, the Hamas are quite tough fighters and the different factions obviously involved in the fighting. And from what I'm hearing, you know, quite, there was one clip by apparently an Israeli commander trying to recruit more soldiers. And he was saying in a short time, over 1,300 soldiers have been killed. Now, I don't know what the figures are because nobody's telling her those figures. But I think they are. Uh, and there's, there, there is no way they can get rid of them. Hamas is an ideology now embedded in the people. Just look at the way the Palestinians are looking at the death and destruction that's been rained upon them. You know, their belief in God, their belief in their cause and all that struggling. Um, you can't destroy something like that and a people like that. Uh, so Israel ultimately, inshallah, they will lose and the West will regret to be associated with this slaughter and uh, genocide in my Well, for every Palestinian that killed, they probably create uh, new ones to join them because the 7th of October, as the General Secretary Antonio Guterres said, did not happen in a vacuum. 
it happened because of the continued persecution of the Palestinian people. And this continued persecution, and, and we're seeing the world is turning against them of what they're doing, is only going to create more resistance against what Israel is doing. Uh, having said that, Dr. Iqbal, um, sorry, excuse me, I'm just going to s- sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm okay. <laughs> Two days ago, the Israelis killed three Israeli hostages. They were carrying a white flag, and yet they were shot uh, uh, in cold blood, despite the report saying they were shouting, don't shoot, we're, we're hostages. What does this tell us about the IDF? And is that a war crime, shooting someone carrying a white flag? Well, if that's not a war crime, Hassan, I really don't know what is a war crime, Right. So, okay, they can say they didn't know that they were Israelis. But if they were Palestinians, there is no way that that, they should have been killed in that manner as they weren't wearing any sort of vests or, uh, you know, uh, hiding anything under them. And then apparently one of them, the two of them were killed straight away. One of them actually shouted and spoke in Hebrew, and they still chased him and killed him as well. So if that's happening to who may be perceived as hostages, Israeli hostages, what do you think they'll be doing to the Palestinians? It would be absolutely terrible. And I do hope the ICC wakes up because, as many commentators have said, and very well-informed commentators, not just ordinary people, have said, if this is not genocide, we just don't know what is genocide. So, But I'm not holding my breath for the ICC or anybody, to be honest. Mm. Um, you know... Yeah, the the report says that the two were shot, as you rightly pointed out. The third one ran away, ran inside, and then another um, group uh, of the IDF, uh, what do you call them? Uh, yeah, chased them into the building and kicked yeah, another, yeah, another group from the other side, uh, so, so chased him and and shot him as well. And at all times, the three of them were claiming to be hostages and and were shot dead. Um, Israel has admitted that they were actually Israeli hostages, so it's quite clear it's not just the Hamas people saying that. No, no, no. And David Gardner, uh, sorry, Frank Gardner from the BBC was reporting that this morning on the BBC as well, uh, that, that that's what's happened. And it certainly uh, puts the question that, and this is what Frank Gardner was saying, that uh, people are saying that if that's what they did, to their own soldiers, not not knowing they were their soldiers, how many more Palestinians who might have been raising white flags were shot that way as well? Uh, because uh, all the press and media were banned from from those areas. Um, so that I mean, report... what about killing of this poor journalist? Uh, uh, you know, the the main journalist, all his family had been killed, but it'd been going on and on. Yeah. So he, as you know, his son was injured, but his cameraman uh, got martyred. Uh, you know, he was uh, taken down by the mm. uh, Israeli munitions as well. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I had over 60 journalists or so, more than any war, I think. That's uh, right. More, more journalists have been killed in this war than any other war. Uh, and, and, the, and the list of such things keeps going. So the question that really arises is when is a, when is it a war crime? We just spoke about war crimes. The yeah. ICJ, the International Court of Justice, must have a pile high catalog of war crimes committed by Israel, and by yeah. and by uh, and the uh, and the IDF by now. Uh, so, sorry, by Israel and the IDF by now. What is the delay of uh, of bringing these people to trial and putting them on trial? Uh, Putin was charged much for much lesser uh, 
uh, atrocities, I think, within days. Uh, yeah, I think there's gamesmanship going on here, to be honest with you, because the ICJ is part officially part of the United Nations and looks at you know issues between the states, but the ICC, hmm. um, that, that is based on the Rome Statute, and that, to me, is a kangaroo court. They're really serving Western interests. I'm sorry. I mean, that's the way I see it, because so far... They seem to have, you know, uh, taken to trial a lot of African uh, leaders. Uh, and then, of course, the, the former Yugoslavia, again, because they really uh, were against the Western camp, in a sense. Mm. But what about the uh, crimes committed in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and now clearly in Palestine? Uh, the time period uh, taken to bring Putin to the court wasn't very long, as you recall. You and this was a major, major yeah. figure, you know, of uh, a nation. So I really, I am really concerned with what's happening on their politics is being played clearly. Um, what about um, the UN Security Council failed to pass the resolution despite an overwhelming majority vote? Um, this is the Security Council, the 15 uh, members who voted, of which 13 uh, voted for ceasefire. America, the U.S. voted, vetoed it, and the United Kingdom abstained from it. And then the United Council, the United Nations Council, voted overwhelmingly. Uh, 150 countries voted for the ceasefire. You know, are, are the ICC, are the ICC and the UN just toothless tigers? I think, uh, to be honest. Uh, I mean, in fairness, the Secretary General of the United Nations, he has done more and said more, really, yes. to say there is a wrong going on, more than anyone else. Including Antonio Guterres. Uh, right, Antonio. Yeah, I yeah. can never remember his name, but that's absolutely. And, you know, then to see that vote and that single hand being raised up, that's mm. infamy. That will be in the history books and remembered. And it was quite shameful of Britain as well. And uh, cowardice being displayed, to be honest, to say that with like a poodle just following what the Americans say. We don't want to upset them. Mm. And yet at the moment, uh, uh, the French and many other countries as well, including the Canadians, actually, because they've uh, and, the, and the Australians. And lately I'm hearing even the Germans have got a bit of a backbone now, finally saying that sustainable ceasefire is required. And Lord Cameron apparently was in the news today or yesterday saying that a sustainable ceasefire is required. So there is pressure building up because the world, the European people are appalled at what their leaders are doing. The world is totally appalled at what the Western world is doing. And uh, yeah, you know, my own view, and you know, we've covered the Ukraine crisis as well. Mm. I think this is really a shameful chapter in European and Western um, uh, history and current affairs where they've clearly lost in Ukraine. And to, to really show their anger, they're punishing a nation and a group of people who can't defend themselves. That is absolutely shameful in my view. Lid, you were going to ask uh, about the... Yes, uh, yes. I just wanted to um, uh, seek your comment about the performance of a new Foreign Secretary, uh, Lord Cameron now. Um, do you think that he has stood a, a more um, a robust line uh, against uh, what's happening in, in Israel, especially with this recent uh, article in the Times that is calling for a sustainable peace? I think he's trying, genuinely believe that. But, you know, politics is a dirty world and international and strategic interests also and economic interests. 
So he has to be careful. Uh, but I do think he is doing a better job than the previous uh, secretary. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, time will tell. But I do believe that uh, he has a more better understanding of the Middle East, the Muslim world and the broader geostrategic developments and interests. So I'm hopeful. I know people may not agree with me, but that, that's my personal view. But such voices are now emerging, aren't they? Because after giving the go-ahead to Israel, to you know, the right to defend and basically opened, gave them, gave them a blank check to do whatever they wanted, they've realized they made a mistake. And now they're having to sort of find ways of uh, dampening what they said uh, and, in, and in, into getting uh, Israel into... You know, into a ceasefire, but but Netanyahu and his far right coalition isn't listening. I do totally agree with you, Hassan, and I think I've read comments that you know within America as well. There's a lot of pressure building on uh, Biden because over the last few days, if you remember, he openly came out and said, "Look, the indiscriminate killing of Palestinians is not acceptable to us. It's doing damage to America." And I know. Netanyahu ignored that, but how long can he go on ignoring that if the president of the United States... I mean, they're complicit as far as I'm concerned because, you know, over 20,000 deaths and he's just developed the nerve to say that's going on. But uh, there is a change happening. And, um, you know, the head of our, our fourth caliph, uh, um, if you recall, had said that there will come a time where even the Western world will get, you know, fed up with Israel's intransigence and... Uh, barbarity and cruelty in dealing with the Palestinians in particular. Mm. And who knows, you know, uh, when Allah will uh, open the hearts of minds of people, including the Muslim world, by the way, who need to, as Jordan Khalifa is saying, need to take a, a firmer and united view. If that was to happen, the war would end uh, very quickly. But clearly, that's not happening either. So let's hope and pray for yeah. the Palestinians. Let's have a quick listen to Prince Faisal bin Farhan Al Saud, or the foreign minister for Saudi Arabia. This is what he had to say when asked the question. Are there any Arab governments willing to come into Gaza, as the U.S. is requesting, as some kind of peacekeeping arrangement after the war? Look, uh, we have made two things clear, that we cannot talk about the day after in Gaza without talking about uh, Palestine as a whole. That is a unified position of the Arab world. And we've also said that we cannot talk about the day after without an end to the fighting, because we don't know what does the day after mean? What does the day after look like? What does Gaza look like? Do you think, um, I mean, we, the question here is what, what's the future for the Palestinian people? Is the Arab world now, who needs to play a prominent role, really, eventually showing, showing signs of unity? And how will the Palestinian rekindle their lives in what has been nothing short of a genocide um, and what many call a holocaust. Yeah, my personal view, Hassan, uh, is that certainly unity is needed, but I don't hold that much hope for um, the Arab world. Look, the Arab world population-wise is you know, largely Egypt, but they're impoverished and have got the begging ball out to everybody. So the Gulf states have got the money, they've got the economic clout, and they can do things, but they're more interested in their own development. The only answer long-term, I believe, for the Palestinians is for uh, the Turkish and the Iranian unity. That will actually give a signal to Israel and the Western world, enough is enough. 
Iran has always been there, and I have a lot of respect for the Iranian people and their suffering and their uh, upright uh, uh, attitude. But they can't do things by themselves because the U.S. is geared up to wanting to attack them for the last 20, 30 years. So mm. that would be unfair for them to act. Uh, the Yemenis were very, very brave in my viewpoint. You might call them whatever you want, terrorists or whatever, but at least they're standing up the bar. So really, it's the, it's, the, it's the Turks, really, who longer term have to decide... Mm where they stand, what they, and when they send a signal together with the Iranians, then the slaughter of the Palestinians will stop, but I don't see that happening still for a long time. The, there's an American uh, YouTube, uh, very popular channel amongst young Americans, uh, called The Young Turks. This is uh, the key presenter uh, or commentator. There. Yeah, Cenk Uga, uh, who, want, who said, this is what he said recently. Just saying that he doesn't want a, a permanent ceasefire because how can you negotiate when Hamas wants to kill all the Jews? Well, um, how do you negotiate when Israel won't end the occupation for 56 years? So it's the number one problem is the occupation. And Bernie, to be fair, is on the right side of that. He doesn't want the occupation, he wants a two state solution, etc. But it, everybody's in, in America's favorite sport is ignoring the fact that these people have been kept in an open air prison for over 50 years now. So imagine just reverse the roles. And I know people get like really touchy when it's the same exact fact pattern, but you reverse ethnicities. So if Jewish people had been kept in open air prisons for 56 years, would we all be like, how dare you fight back? You shouldn't love the, the Germans. You should love the Palestinians. You should love whoever it is. Oh, so what? They're keeping you in a ghetto and you have no rights and you have no country and you have no existence. Shut up and take it and love your occupier. And oh, by the way, if you fight back, it's your fault. Can you imagine? That would be horrific if anyone did that to the Jews. It's also horrific when you do it to the Palestinians. Yeah, it, it makes a good point that when you turn the table, uh, the, the picture looks totally different. And, and you've given the example of Russia. Uh, we're exactly the same sort of scenarios there, and yet we've criticized Russia, but not criticized Israel. Uh, I mean, the, the real story, the real issue that we're looking at is the future of the Palestinian people. And the real battle, because 7th of October was not the start of this, all of these atrocities. It was much earlier, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, when uh, Israel took the land, the land was taken from the Palestinians without negotiating with them, without consultation with them. And this is what has happened. 7th of October has happened as a result of that. So the real battle, uh, Dr. Iqbal, will be won on a negotiating table, surely. And is the U.S. the solution or the problem in this conflict? Oh, U.S. has always been a problem, as and look, let's be honest. I mean, look, we live in the Western world, in America, in Canada, in Britain, where, you know, the people are wonderful. We have so many rights and thankful. But we have to be honest, honest to ourselves, honest to our God, and look at our people who have been treated like animals. That's what the Western world and Israel are doing to the Palestinians. And when you stand in front of God and say, no, I have to defend their rights, you have to say, this is unfair and it can't go on. And the Americans can never be an independent, fair-minded negotiator on that. And the other thing is, Hassan, look, you've got to have something to negotiate with. Either you have lots of money and power, mm -hmm. or you have a military presence or whatever. The Palestinians don't have anything to negotiate with. So the only people who can come to their side is either a fair mediator or a group of people. And that group of people has to be the Muslim world 
because the Palestinians can't do anything. They can't, you know, even fight longer term because they'll be destroyed. So they got no. So it has to be the unity of the Muslim world based on justice, based on fairness, based on long-lasting peace, and based on the true message of Islam of establishing peace across the world. When the day when that happens and they recognize their responsibilities, then the Palestinians will have something. But until then, I really. I'm sorry, I, I don't hold out any hope uh, for them. But, but they, they will never, the cause for Palestinians will never die. The Palestinians are incredibly brave people. Incredibly brave. I don't think you've seen anyone as brave as them. Uh, so I'm with them in every way, but I'm a realist at the end of it. Really? Uh, Last question? Yes. Uh, while rejecting a two-state solution, what do you think the position of uh, the Israelis is at the moment regarding the Palestinians? Is it their annihilation of the Palestinian people or the transportation of the Palestinian people to another, well, another area? I think ideally when you listen to and read between the lines, they would ideally like to get rid of them all somewhere else into the Arab world and then, you know, run Israel the way they want. The only the two-state solution is really dead now. That we have to be honest about that. And from an Israeli point of view, if they stay, then it'll be an apartheid uh, system. It's clear that's already operating, and that is never going to be acceptable. Longer term, look, this, the Jews were living with Muslims for you know centuries, right? Mm. And so you can live together as Jews, Christians, Muslims, etc. You don't have to you know persecute and kill people. Um, but it's about righteousness, it's about being fair, it's about having equal rights, etc. And the Israelis will never allow that to happen. So uh, my view is that the ideal scenario for the Israelis, the Zionists, by the way, there are some fantastic Jews. And honestly, over the last two months, the amount of defense that's been done by some great Jewish speakers for the Palestinians, my heart is moved. You know, they have been... Absolutely amazing. And even the way the Israelis have stood and uh, uh, said enough is enough, you know. So we should be able to live together, Jews, Christians, Muslims, whatever, together, uh, ruled fairly. But Israel will never accept that, never allow that. And therefore, I, I only see a violent end to this. May Allah forgive us. With that, Dr. Iqbal, uh, I think it's a good end to the show. Thank you very much for those contributions and your thoughts and your views. Uh, Frank, as they always are, uh, we always appreciate you uh, giving those views. Uh, and thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you, Hassan Ali. Joining us uh, in the studio is uh, our young Imam, uh, uh, Daniel Kalun. Assalamu alaikum, Daniel. Wa alaikum salam. You've been listening very attentively, so you keep yes. waiting, but uh, no some interesting discussions there. You know, one of the things really that comes out of the last sort of things that we were discussing with uh, Dr. Iqbal. About the Jews, I mean, uh, in Israel, I think Dr. Iqbal's right that a lot of Jews there probably want to get rid of uh, the Palestinians, and most of them are the ones who have, who have uh, migrated from America or, the, or Britain or the West mm. into America, rather than the Jews who are living <coughs> in, in, in there. Particularly the settlers, or more or less everyone mm. is from America or somewhere there, who are the most vociferous against the Palestinians. Mm. But this, what this incident, this conflict has brought up, is that there are a lot of Jews now against what Israel is doing. Right? Mm. In America, one of the reasons they say Biden is changing his tune is that he's losing votes of the young Americans mm -hmm. because of this incident 
and from the Jewish lobby, mm. not generally just from the young American, because of the Jewish lobby. Mm. And you see in America large demonstrations of Jews against what Israel is doing. Mm. Mm. Here in the United Kingdom, uh, I went to the walk on the marches, and you've seen it on uh, YouTube, etc. There are a large number of Jews attending those marches as mm. well, right? They mm. feel totally safe. I walk mm. with some of them. Yeah, saying not in our name. Not in our name. Yeah, and our and name. I spoke to some, many of them. Mm. And extreme empathy for the Palestinian people. Extreme empathy. And mm. when the anti-Semitism march took place, and I thought to myself, why are they feeling scared? While the, the Jews, there were hundreds of them walking mm. with 100,000 pro-Palestinians, 300,000 yeah. Palestinians. Why weren't they fearing mm. their lives there? Mm. It's the humanity that is coming out. Yeah, humanity absolutely. Is the, the so this anti-Semitic, this anti-Semitic yeah. feeling that, mm. you know, we feel threatened. You know, we had rabbis on our show, and none of them said they've ex- actually experienced any Semitism from mm. the congregation, never given any narration. Mm. Mm. Although mm. I, I understand there is some fear mm. for some, but I think sometimes you, know, you get the old stupid person reacting. But, you know, is that, am, I, am I right to say that? You're right. There should be no need to fear from, from, the, from the Muslim Absolutely. if Muslims behave properly. Absolutely. Um, mm. You're right. And I think the irony really, it really sticks out here because I'm sure you must have seen as well those uh, Harvard... Um, uh, students, yes, right? Students, yes. right? Who right. who were given a platform by the government and everything to uh, to tell the world how scared they feel, how yeah. they feel that they're in an anti-Semitic environment, right? Now these are uh, upper class, rich people, uh, very privileged people, yeah. right? Yeah. And they're studying in in the highest, highest uh, level universities in the world, yeah. and they feel like they're unsafe. But at the same time, in America, literally within the past couple of weeks three yeah. Palestinian students, university students, were shot, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think that playing the anti-Semitism card right now is even in the best interest of uh, the Zionists because it's, it's, I think it's, they're just uh, hitting themselves on the foot with a hammer. Yeah. The distinction that really needs to be made in any discussion with regards to this is that we shouldn't conflate Judaism with Zionism. Uh, when we refer to Israel and its atrocities, we, we refer to Zionism because Zionism is a political entity uh, it's not a religious institution. Zionism uh, began or was really um, properly established by Theodor Herzl just over a century ago. Judaism has been here for thousands of years. Mm. And um, there's a huge difference. As we spoke to the rabbi last it, show it, as well, exactly, he, he clarified that as well. There's a genuine difference between Zionism and Judaism. Mm. And Orthodox Jews are against the the, the creation of, yeah, the creation yeah. of Israel yeah. 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 and the existence of Israel. Mm. But uh, on the anti-Semitism, I, I think, you know, uh, in Britain, everyone is quite safe. And if there is any incidency, they should be reported to the police and acted upon. And, uh, and that's how it should, should always be as well. I mean, you know, we as Muslims, we as Asians, we as migrants, we get attacked more times than, than mm. anyone in mm. this country. Yeah. And our mosque has been attacked so many times. And, you know, I think someone threw a pig's mm. head here at the mosque when we first bought it. Okay. We've yes. experienced that as a generation living in the West um, during 9-11 and post 9-11, right? Yeah. Uh, Muslims living in the West, we've we've had it pretty tough in that sense. Yeah. But, you know, we're we, not... We, we, we survived. We're resilient. <laughs> we, yeah? Exactly, yeah, we're we, we take it on the chin. Yeah? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I said, I gave a talk uh, to a school once and I said, uh, England has racists, but England is not a racist country, right? Mm. Just because some people are racist. And yeah. I said, I've faced... Uh, 
racism of all kinds, being mm. a Muslim, being a Pakistani, being a migrant. And we were taught to, to stand up to it, you know, and, mm. and, and, and don't be frightened of it. And that's what brought us through, mm. and that's why we have done so well. Mm -hmm. uh, but if people feel threatened, then that, oh, that, uh, that has to be respected. That has to be respected. Yeah, of yes, course it has to yes. be respected. Mm. And that's what I'm saying, that when mm. we asked the rabbi, uh, the, the rabbis, if they had, or the congregation, faced any direct uh, anti-Semitism, they, they said they can't quote of any, they can't mm -hmm. give any mm -hmm. anecdotal mm -hmm. evidence. Exactly, whereas on the other side, I'm sure mm. every single person we know within our community or the we'll Muslim community can say that we have yeah. faced Islamophobia mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the past decade or two. Right, Daniel, before we run out of time, because last week we were unable to cover your topic. <laughs> <We're happy laughs> I feel to like all, everything we discuss is my topic. My, like, yeah, <laughs> I absolutely. always have something it to is, say about it. It is, it is. <laughs> Uh, so let's start our uh, your segment of the show with the verse of the Holy Quran. And fight in the name in the cause of Allah against those who fight against you, but do not transgress. Surely Allah loves not the transgressors. Uh, Quranic, uh, the Quran verses chapter 2, Surah Bakra, verse 191. Um, the Pew Research Center, mm. this is an American uh, research uh, body, what do they say? They say that Americans' uh, views of the link between Islam and violence have fluctuated in recent years. Currently, a plurality, 45%, say Islam is no more likely than other faiths to encourage violence among its believers, compared with 38% who say that Islam does encourage violence more than other religions. This is similar to positions on this issue in 2005. By contrast, in Pew Research Center surveys conducted in 2004 and 2007, more people said Islam does encourage violence than said it does not. That would have been post 9-11, I would have thought, and that's mm. why that was high. Despite the fact that in America, uh, there are more Christian-related attacks mm. than Islamic-related attacks. Yeah, and it outweighs by a large by number. A right? But not in the media. But not in the media, yeah. of course, right. <laughs> so, Daniel, coming to you, our young imam. Um, in the West, Islam is criticized, mm. right? Uh, and... Uh, mostly because of the actions of the Taliban, the ISIS, 9-11, the, 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 the July, 7th July bombings mm. in, in Britain, and probably Hamas seen as a representation of Islam rather than the teachings of Islam, you know, or the actual state. So my first question to you, what is Islam's solution for conflict resolution? Why is war permitted uh, in, in, in other ways? Um, right, so... The, the, what people say, I, I was on a show with Nicky Campbell once on BBC Radio, mm. and the first question he said, uh, if it's, you say Islam is a peaceful religion, why does it permit wars then? Right? Mm. So this, they, they always link, because Islam permits wars, therefore it's not a peaceful religion, right? Yeah. I think, I, I think, I think that question in itself is just um, so strange. How can you expect some, as in, if you want someone to be absolutely pacifist, right, then that means everyone else around them needs to be pacifist as well. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Correct. Right? So either the whole world uh, endorses non-violence and completely gives up warfare, or you can't expect to just Islam to completely give up their arms or their right to defend. Right? If Israel has a right to defend itself, so does so do Muslims. 
the point is that when it comes to warfare specifically in the Holy Quran, the very first instance, right, where Muslims were finally allowed to take up arms was in defense, right? That those people uh, who are persecuted, um, they were oppressed, they have been given a right to defend themselves, right? Because they were kicked out of their homes, because they were kicked out of their town, and they were persecuted, their, um, their belongings were taken away from them, and everything in between. And that's the only reason and the first reason that Muslims were allowed to take up arms. Before that, they were not they were not allowed to take up any offensive measures against anyone else. And even when they were allowed to, it was only defensive measures. Mm. That's the first point. The second point, I think, what needs to be remembered is that whereas, yes, Islam does allow you to take up arms in order to defend yourself, um, it also uh, puts down very, very strict guidelines and rules and regulations about what you can and cannot do. And one of the main things is that it's interesting because we were, you were discussing this whole ICC and ICJ um, type of fiasco where they're, they're calling Russia and Putin war criminals, but they're not calling... Um, exactly, right? And the interesting part is that is these very same people who criticize Islam call it backwards, but they don't realize Islam literally gives the best framework for such a situation. It says you should testify um, against falsehood even if it is your own kindred, your own family, your own parents, right? So Israel, they may be, a lot of the Israeli settlers may be American descendants or European descendants, but Europe and America should realize that Islam gave that best teaching that when they are doing something wrong, you should call them out for it. You should really bring them to justice for it, right? So that's the second point. And the third point, um, which I'm going to mention, the last point, again, coming back to the Holy Quran, that's where we derive most of our uh, teachings from uh, with regards to Islam. Uh, there's a verse which mentions that if there are two groups which fight each other, then the rest of the people, the rest of the groups around them, they should come together as arbiters and they should actually um, try to broker peace between those the two groups. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And if they accept the peace, then well and good. But if one of the parties decides not to accept the peace, right, then everyone should band together and stop that party from oppressing or from uh, transgressing, right? And I see that that's exactly what's happening right now, where the entire world, save America, is voting for ceasefires, right? The entire world is saying stop, right? Um, but because Israel doesn't want to, so it's allowed to carry on. Now, imagine if the entire world, hypothetically speaking, right? I'm just saying, hypothetically mm. speaking, if the entire world was Muslim and they had to act according to this verse of the Holy Quran, if the entire world had told Israel, you cannot do this anymore, then Israel would have had to stop. Otherwise, the entire world would come we together to, to stop him. It, yeah. And that's in accordance with a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that you should help your brother, whether he is the oppressed or the oppressor. And a companion at the time, uh, P, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, was uh, around when he heard this and he said to the Prophet, okay, I understand you saying help the, uh, your brother when he's oppressed. Yeah. How can we help Why someone who's oppressed? Exactly. Yeah. And he said by stopping the oppressor from committing those oppressions. Committing those oppressions. Mm. And that's exactly what, we, well, what the world needs to wake up to. And which you just said as well, Biden kind of is starting to wake up to it, but, you know, uh, it's for quite late selfish reasons, I for think. his own <laughs> interests, for his own reasons. Yeah. But they need to realize that they need to stop the oppressor. And it's not even just about just so that the oppressor can be saved from mm. um, damnation or whatever. Yeah. They, I think they clearly understand that for their own self-interest, they need to stop. Need to yeah. So Before, what you're saying is that that mantra that uh, many world leaders uh, said and repeated, we stand by Israel should have been understood under the Islamic uh, context. Framework. 
Yes, where they stand by his head means that they should be holding back their hands when they are doing when something they wrong. Do yeah, something exactly. Wrong. Not just yeah, yeah. Exactly. Standing by Israel doesn't mean we give you mm. a carte blanche, carte blanche yeah. to do anything and everything. It mm. means we stand by you when you are being oppressed, but we stand by you when you, uh, we stand by you by helping you to not be the oppressor when you are being mm. the oppressor. Yeah, indeed, mm. I think that's a very good point. Mm. Really. Yeah, that's mm. and very well covered as mm. well. Mm. And in fact, the, the the verse that you quoted that you permission to give to fight, mm. uh, and then says that had it not then surely the churches, the synagogues and the temples and the mosques would have been destroyed. destroyed exactly. Right? Yeah. So there, the, the, Allah is instructing the Muslim nation yeah. that it is their duty to protect the rights of others. Of others, exactly. Right? Yeah. Of whatever faith they are and yeah. their places of worship as well. Yeah. There was a horrific scene in, in Israel where the IDF went into a mosque. Obviously, they mm. emptied out the Palestinians and started calling out their prayers or songs inside rather you know that is also desecrating the right of the of a mosque what it is it, it is and as a uh, our caller um dr sab dr gibal sab uh, mentioned actually it, it was such a perfect example imagine if the tables were turned the ethnicities were reversed imagine yeah. if a muslim, muslim had, had gone into a synagogue and done that and started calling the call to prayer without their permission it would be blasted all over the world. everywhere everywhere it would be front front line news people would be saying yeah. this is uh, what muslims do this yeah. is islam out of ignorance but that, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the, a huge the, double standard the, the, the far right uh, <laughs> commentators would have been up in arms yeah. yeah so there is a there is a imbalance yeah there's uh, a double unfairness. standard a double standard and the the direction in the verses that you mentioned also talks about justice exactly just balance and fairness yeah in in how you go about things and the quran is full of advice to hypocrites that mend your ways don't be hypocrites being a hypocrite is is in some ways worse than being a disbeliever mm. right mm. in the quran it's been highlighted so yeah. so much and being a hypocrite isn't just um, limited to religious Beliefs, being a hypocrite is also it ex- expands to that, and mm-hmm. I think right now the Western world, the modern world, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's definitely heading. Oh, it, it is um, in deep in a pit of yeah, hypocrisy, yeah. and they really need to. In fact, Surah Al-Baqarah well, starts addressing the hypocrites exactly. before it goes on to all the other deeper subjects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another question, uh, Daniel: the Holy Prophet's kind conduct during warfare. Uh, we've seen in Israel that th- that's not the case. It's not okay. Yeah. Tell us what the Islamic perspective and, and the example of the Holy Prophet about treatment of others uh, right. during warfare. So I think I think uh, the best example um, that we can uh, present here is that when after the Battle of Uhud, so this was the second major battle between the disbelievers of Mecca and the Muslims, and the Muslims suffered um, a great loss in Uhud where because of some sort of disobedience to the Prophet, um, some Muslims uh, went after some uh, uh, war booty but you know got, it was a lesson it was supposed to be a lesson for Muslims not just at the time but for all future generations that obedience to the Prophet and Allah are paramount anyway so after the Battle of Uhud when the Meccans returned Abu Sufyan the leader of uh, the Meccan tribes at the time because all the other leaders of the Meccans had perished in the Battle of Badr mm. he uh, promised and he challenged the Muslims that they will come back the next year at a certain time to fight the Muslims again and the Prophet accepted it. He said, okay, um, you know, if you want to come and fight us, we're not going to just stay at home. So when the time came, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he gathered his forces, 1,500 men, very ill-equipped, um, not very, not veterans in war, right? Um, and Abu Sufyan, he equipped his army, 2,000 well-trained veterans of war. 
And uh, the Prophet began to march, reached the site of Badr. It was supposed to ha- happen at the site of Badr again. Um, Abu Sufyan, though, he, he turned back, right? And he the reason, for, the reason that he gave was that there was a drought in Mecca at the time and that surrounding area. And due to that, it was difficult. And he said, okay, let's postpone this and we'll just do it later. And the Holy Prophet and his um, men were already there. So they stayed in Badr at the battlefield of Badr for eight more days. They traded with the local tribes and everything. And then when they realized that the Meccans won't be coming, they went back. So the first point we need to realize is the Holy Prophet's um, good conduct with regards to keeping his word, right? Uh, Even though he knew he was less equipped, he was Mm. ill-equipped as compared to the Meccans, he knew that they would have um, the the benefit of having better um, armor, better weapons and everything. Um, And there wouldn't be any element of surprise going in favor of the Muslims or anything, right? Despite that, he kept his word and he turned up, right? So that's number one. Number two, when he returned to Medina um, and he heard about the dire situation of the drought in Mecca, imagine these are the people who had just taken up arms against the Prophet and his Muslims to completely annihilate them from the face of the earth. He heard the dire situation and he sent financial aid to the Meccans, Mm -hmm. to the rich and the poor, whoever needed it most, he sent it to them. These are the same people who had just turned up to kill them. Exactly. To destroy them, to annihilate them. Right. Um, And uh, there's another that incident. That would be a bit like Israel giving aid to Hamas. Yes. Although Netanyahu did. Previously. <laughs> 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 there's a lot under that layer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's another example of when another drought hit Mecca, Abu Sufyan actually turned up to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and said, look, we all know you're a pious man, right? Um, please pray to Allah that we are relieved of this drought, mm-hmm. right? So imagine this, and the Holy Prophet naturally prayed for him, right? So imagine this, that your enemies are literally um, imploring you to pray for you. I think the point, the point that needs to be highlighted here is that these, um, the Holy Prophet and his companions and Islam in general, they have no animosity against people for the sake of whatever, for the sake of being themselves or or whatever, their ethnicity. Their, Their, let's call it beef, right, with the Meccans was... Uh, due, due to some uh, religious uh, differences, right? Due to which the Muslims were being persecuted, mm. right? There was no personal enmity. No. There was no personal animosity against the Meccans. They were actually their relatives, yeah. these Meccan people. Yeah. And that's why the Holy Prophet had so much uh, uh, compassion for, for them. Exactly. Yeah. And that is a perfect example for any Muslim 1,500 years later to even see that, yes, when you are fighting against your enemies, fight to defend yourself, fight for your rights. But fight for the cause and no more. That's it, exactly. Mm-hmm. What about environmental costs? Because, you know, we live in an age of environment crisis and, uh, you know, you use a car and they'll, they'll you know, be on your back for using a car that's not yours, protected and things like yeah. that. And yet, when uh, Israel or America or any other, or Russia, when they throw bombs, which cause much more damage than any mm. car will uh, in terms of what they do to the environment, what's the Islamic solution to that? Well, How does that deal with it? Well, as you mentioned, when, again, there's a double standard because, look, when America dropped the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, right? Imagine the environmental damage, right? We, the people are still feeling it to this day. Cancer rates are still sky high to this day. When they dropped depleted uranium on Iraq in the first Gulf War, right? The children are still being born with cancer due to that because the soil, the air, and the water is contaminated mm-hmm. with depleted uranium. When they're dropping white phosphorus on Gaza at the moment, right? It, just imagine the environmental damage, 
um, that that's causing. And these are just the weapons. Let's look at the infrastructure. Let's look at the um, logistics of warfare as well, where you've got the military vehicles and everything. Everything is using up some sort of fuel, which is not great for the environment, right? And then when Gaza is being attacked, you think... Uh, it's just buildings being destroyed. No, it's also their water treatment plants which are being destroyed, right? Which contaminates the water. When you make uh, a huge number of people refugees like the uh, Myanmar people did to the Rohingyas, what happens then? Those millions of people, they move um, through land which is not, which has not got the infrastructure to support people to support such a large population. So what happens then? People need to fulfill their basic needs in nature. They need to try and find sources of water in nature and that causes huge environmental damage. The point is that Islam, literally as the verse actually that you played out, says that um, if you need to fight, fight, but do not transgress, transgress, right? The Prophet, peace be upon him, gave rules. He said no crops are to be destroyed, no trees are to be cut down during war, no buildings are to be destroyed, right, where people live, no inhabitations are, are supposed to be destroyed, right? These are all very important factors. It, it's not just because of financial um uh, disaster if you destroy cr it's crops it's, it's a, exactly and and it's for the world it's for the ecosystem as well yeah. if you're destroying trees and crops you know in the olden days um, warfare was still better where they would fight armies face to face in mm. trenches or whatever right mm. um, because the the effect on the uh, natural world was was far less but nowadays this kind of warfare happening in cities on populations on inhabitants mm. on their water treatment facilities on their infrastructure on roads bridges everything it's it's a it's a disaster, and we should again look at the Islamic teaching. And wars are a cause of major disasters yeah. to the environment. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much. Very enlightening. Uh, learned some new things there as well. Um, and uh, I don't think Israel follows some of those uh, some <laughs> rules that uh, that you outlined there. You think? Believe. <laughs> 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 We're coming to the end of the show. Yep. Uh, we have been able to discuss uh, sports. No big match between but, but Liverpool. Big match between yes, Liverpool. 4.30. Yeah. What, who's going to win it? Oh, I think Liverpool. I, 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 uh, yeah. 7 0? No. <laughs> no, I think it'll be close. It'll um, be close, yes. Yeah? Yeah, what, 6 0? I'm sorry, close as a game, not close to 7 0. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Well, my, my children are Man United supporters, so okay. be careful, yes. And you? <laughs> I have to be on the, on the, on the, on the fence. Yeah. Yes. Never got shy today, but his team won on Friday. Yes. Uh, sad to hear about Tom Lockyer, uh, the yes. Luton uh, captain who got yeah. injured, may recover quickly. Uh, and thank you all, uh, Daniel, Walid, uh, mm. our guest, uh, Dr. Iqbal, and Saif Hamadi, and to our listeners for taking part and taking time to listen to our show. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.